1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sanjukta Puddar, the host of the channel. I'm a postdoctoral teaching fellow in the Department of South Asian Languages and Civilizations and the Department of Race, Diaspora, and Indigeneity at the University of Chicago. Today, we have with us... Vandana Sunalkar and Anupama Rao, and we'll discuss their work Memoirs of a Dalit Communist, The Many Worlds of R.B. Morey. Vandana Sunalkar taught economics with a focus on feminism, caste, and development at Dr. Baba Saheb Ambedkar Marathwada University in Aurangabad and the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Bombay. She retired in 2017. Since then, she has been working as an independent researcher, writer, and translator. Apart from the text that we are discussing today, she has also translated We Also Made History, which examines the role of women in the Ambedkar movement. Her other recent publication is a first person narrative titled Why I'm Not a Hindu Woman A Personal Story. At present, She's a member of the Executive Council of the Indian Association for Women's Studies and working as the editor of the association's newsletter. Anupamai Rao teaches history at Barnard College and and at the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University, New York. She has a wide range of research and teaching interests, gender and sexuality studies, caste and race historical anthropology, social theory, comparative urbanism, and human rights. In 2009, she published The Caste Question, Dalits and Politics of Modern India. Currently, she's working on a book about the political thought of Indian social reformer and political leader, P.R. Ambedkar, titled Ambedkar in America, as well as a project on Dalit Bombay, which explores the relationship between caste, political culture, and everyday life in colonial and post-colonial Bombay. She's the editor of Memoirs of a Dalit Communist, the book that we are discussing today. Anupama and Vandana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, you, Sanjita. Great to be here.
0: Thank
2: you. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll start our conversation. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves And since this is an intensely collaborative work, I'm curious to learn about how you met each other and how you were drawn to R.B. Morey's writings.
0: Okay. Um, Should I go ahead, Anupama? Yep. Uh, We met when um, Anupama was doing research for her PhD thesis and was visiting Maharashtra. Uh, I, we were living. I was living in Aurangabad at the time, and uh, we were really introduced by an old friend, a friend who has recently passed away, Vishleshendra, uh, who thought that it would be uh, a good idea for Anupama to come and meet me and my husband Tulsi, and as some of her uh, field work would be. In the Marathwada region, of which Aurangabad is the main city. And that just started a friendship. Um, it was some years later that we came to this RB More, but uh, Anu Pama will say something more about this.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I think you know there are there are many passings and introductions and openings that frame how one came to this text. Uh Vandana has mentioned Lee Schlesinger, who um studied many years ago at the University of Chicago um, and and uh, did a PhD in anthropology, but also Vandana's uh, partner, Thulshi Parab, who uh, was a kind of extraordinary resource uh, with a very wide range of interests and ways of seeing that were, I think, both unique and um very significant. He had a deep sense of uh, Bombay in the 60s and the 70s, um, having sort of grown up and been a part of many of the uh, literary movements of the time, had uh, been a, an activist in rural Maharashtra and dhule And uh, himself was a a really profound poet, um, you know, uh, quite an extraordinary poet uh, who inhabited, you know, in many ways, the uh, worlds of um, uh, urban Bombay, of Maharashtra and its political and intellectual history, but also had very wide ranging sort of global interests and connections uh, uh, in terms of imaginative world so that was the the opening as it were for how we became acquainted and we've done um, other things together uh, and have maintained a a long-standing connection and collaboration but in terms of coming to uh, More's book I think it's worth mentioning that when I was working on my book, uh, The Cast Question, I encountered uh, the biography and autobiography of uh, Arbi More, which had been published in Marathi, uh, and also came to know uh, Arbi More's grandson, Subodh More, who was a common friend for both Vandana and I. And uh, encountering that book, What I began to to see, because my own book had moved away from a kind of history of social movements uh, within which the Ambedricite movement had been situated to really think through a way of imploding social theory and social thought to bring them together in many ways. Um, Mori's own um, work was um, a kind of startling reminder of the life worlds of caste, of caste labor, of, uh, you know, Ambedkarite politics in its time, and also its relationship to urban radicalism. Uh, and one that, you know, I felt really needed to find um, a broader global audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, this was a text that, you know, opened up questions of intellectual histories from below. It asked about the, you know, very complex histories of anti-caste thought but it also suggested the world around and exceeding Ambedkar. So it allowed us to both sort of think about Ambedkar's significance Mm -hmm. for caste and thinking, but it also suggested that there was a much more complex heterodox world around him that we knew very little about. So this is the kind of entry into the uh, text and its translation, which uh, took us some time um, to really work through.
2: Right, right. That's really fascinating. And um, you know, I'm going to kind of dive yes. into some of those terms that you mentioned, especially life was, but, uh, you know, I, I want to go slowly for our listeners. Um, so one of the questions, I'm curious, how long uh, did this collaboration go on, bet- uh, you know, this process yes. of translating and, I mean, the formal process, I'm sure, as you said, informally, you've been in conversation for very long. So,
0: you know, um this collab- I mean, I think the collaboration between Anupama and me started uh, around her work. And we uh, both Tulsi and I uh, engaged with the kind of research she was doing. Hmm. And uh, then around that, t- you know, a little later, I, I was involved in anti-caste movements, uh, working with young people on on the anti-caste front. I started writing in Marathi on gender and caste, uh, getting much more interested in Ambedkar and really reading uh, other uh, important Marathi anti-caste writers at that time. Mm -hmm. And in 2008, uh, I published uh, the the translation of uh, We Also Made History, which was a book by uh, two Dalit women who worked Mm. on um, Dalit women's uh, involvement in in the Ambedkar movement. This had also started off much earlier Mm. when uh, a group that I was involved with, uh, Alochina, had held a meeting in 1996 Mm. when people were beginning to talk about Dalit women's involvement and uh, you know, we brought together a number of Dalit women to speak about their experiences. And then it was over the years. I mean, even this first translation took a long time. And mm-hmm. so did the R.B. Uh, It was, uh, you know, again, it was a kind of life engagement uh, right. with right. the issues which went on evolving over time. Right. It was not just an academic ex- exercise in that sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that really comes across, I think, in the when one reads the book. Um, so, yeah, while we're talking about this process, uh, maybe, Vandana, you can tell us a little bit about the challenges of the process of translation um, and Anupama, uh, you know, ch- the challenges of the editorial process, um, which will, again, you know, maybe that could be a space of reflection, again, on the process itself, Um
0: You know, in the beginning, maybe when uh, Anupama suggested that I translate this work, uh, she was already involved in her project, uh, I mean, coming out of her book and into the project of Dalit Bombay. And her approach, as she will talk about, was very different. I just kind of plunged into the text, so to speak. Mm. By that time, being interested in what Ambedkar had meant to various people. I also had a background uh, in, the, uh, in the communist movement, in leftist movements, going back to much earlier when I first uh, came back to India after being in England during the, the early 1970s. So mm-hmm. you know, when we were having intense Marxist discussions and so on in, in, in those days, Hmm. so More was a fascinating figure uh, hmm. the very fact that he worked with Ambedkar and later on joined the Communist Party uh, and once I started reading the text it is of course uh, you know as we will go on to speak about the fact that uh, the actual autobiography is, is quite short and ends uh, quite early in in uh, More's life
3: yeah uh, quite abruptly he died
0: before he could go further mm-hmm. so uh, but uh, you know it was so beautifully written it was something that was a pleasure to translate i think that is something we can come back to later as well
2: right Anup- yeah absolutely anupama yeah. Um, so I think
3: a few things that that you know Bandhan has brought up. One is um, really the question of time and temporality and politics. Right. That in many ways. Um, you know, I think for me, not having been uh, just through age and also location, not having been uh, a kind of a participant in the movement, uh, the autonomous movements, whether it's, you know, the feminist movement or left politics uh, uh, in, in the region. For me, um, the, the entry, I think, was very much to think about the question of the kind of life world of the interwar period. The ways in which historically this was a moment of various sorts of opening And to think about the dissonance between also that moment, that moment that opens up a possible translation between caste and class coming to the question of translation and transliteration, and the different moments in the political history, both of the region, and I would say in the history of uh, what we might call sort of Indian Marxism, where that question of caste and class has been posed anew. Apparently, you know, uh, again and again, with sort of new eyes, with a new focus, and so on. But this is a recurrent problem and a question, right? How is caste related to class? How do we think about Ambedkarite communism or Dalit communists like Arbi More, who have a kind of split personality, if you will, right? Whose politics are both uh, an investment in uh, anti-caste politics and caste annihilation on the one hand. Mm -hmm. But who are also thinking through what we might call a sort of communism of equals, right? The kind of heterodox world of Marxist thought, language, imagination. That uh, yes. they were also confronting in the context of of Bombay, and so um, you know this was this was my entry point initially uh, into the into the life of R.B. More. But mm-hmm. I think it also opens up a number of very interesting questions. One is this question of popular memory and the archive, right? Mm-hmm. Where is One of the things that we really did end up doing, uh, you asked about the editorial process, a large part of what one did in framing that introduction was to think about the relationship between popular archives, uh, family histories, archives that have no recognizable right which is to say state-sponsored as it were uh, reality or existence that aren't being supported in that way these are archives by Ambedkarites by Dalit activists that they put together at enormous cost and sacrifice mm-hmm. um, right we, we drew That's... on that archive of popular memory as well as documents
2: mm-hmm. but I think
3: also of the relationship between biography and history that really comes up in um, the more both translation uh, but also the autobiography and the biography how do we relate the life of the life because that life is being um, represented at least twice over right in his own as Vandana put it sort of beautiful language Mm. really located time and then by the sun so there's al- already uh the question of representation of uh, political subjectivity and so on as well so just yeah. marking a few uh things that you know to me were very interesting
2: right right yeah no absolutely and that's so fascinating and i mean that was really my next question that this Work brings to light the first-person narrative of an important but relatively unknown leader, unknown at a national scale. Maybe within, uh, you know, within local communist circles in Maharashtra, he is pro- well known. You can talk about that, but um, but somebody who's so important, who was a contemporary uh, yeah. and close associate of B. R. Ambedkar. So the question I wanted to ask, uh, leading from you know, the discussion we've had so far is uh, what's the significance of this uh, work in adding to the genealogy of Dalit writing and first-person narratives of leaders who've been lost to history, right? And this is what you were both indicating uh, about, you know, these pers- uh, these archives that are available nowhere else except within the movement and um. Uh, uh, you know, uh, lead uh, or uh, workers and organizers and leaders who've preserved these archives at a great cost. So, if you could reflect a little more about that, uh, you know, the process that you've witnessed of this archive making, if as it were.
0: Uh, I'd also like to s- just say a word before Anubhama goes into her whole work of, you know, um, resuscitating this archive. Uh, which comes out in the book, of course. Uh, But, you know, when you talked about these relatively unknown people, even the earlier book I translated Mm -hmm. uh, did not find a very wide readership in Marathi, even though it was a significant work. And there were a lot of, uh, although the two women who worked on it also put in huge effort Mm -hmm. and uh, faced a lot of difficulties in, in reaching the sources and so on um as far as RB more was concerned again uh, the Marathi book did not have a very wide readership uh, mm. you know now when I even go back even after the English translation has has come out and some people have come to know more through this translation rather than having done the Marathi itself uh, it is it is a whole uh, history of of uh, how the Voices have never been uh, very much in the forefront. It's something of an evolving history of more of wow. recent times that uh, you know Dalit writings are again uh, being paid attention to, and uh, th- this was a part of our experience, I think, uh, because we you know I started with the translation. I just worked through the the, the work itself, um, as I said. Uh, the autobiography is so beautifully written. Uh, I went through it without even, uh, I came back to thinking about how it had been written much later. But uh, when one reads the second half, uh, which is the son trying to write about his father's life, um, then you come across this, uh, the various ways of looking at Marxism and and the thought of and work of Ambedkar. And it was something I was living with as well, because I was working with a group which calls themselves uh, Marxwaad, Fule, Ambedkarwaad, you know, mm. uh, trying, and the way that they were uh, conceiving these various uh, modes of thinking or various uh, paradigms you can say was very different from the way i was coming at it and already you know even anupama then as a historian um, coming uh to ambedkar as a an, an academic based in the us but then you know the, the encounter between us and also of course the inputs from my husband tulsi who had had a different again a very different encounter with the history of Ambedkar and Marx uh, in Maharashtra because of his own involvement uh, with a group called the Dalit Panthers in the early 1970s, Mm -hmm. you know? So uh, there were so many cross currents really uh, and so many angles at which we. you can say Tulsi, who was very much involved in the project as I was writing it, uh, Anupama and myself, uh, but many others.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you do get a sense of this being a really collaborative work. Um, So maybe we can, Anupama, you want to reflect on this process of, you know, building a genealogy uh, and, you know, this question of archives that you brought up. Sure. Um, You know, I think um,
3: I'll I'll pick up on something that, you know, Vandana was mentioning, that there are many different interpretations. There are many different ways of, you know, reading both the movement and then, you know, it's it's many, many afterlives, right? But I think, you know, one of the things that one was circling around or maybe what unites all of these um, many different reading practices, let me call it, or practices of interpretation shaped by our own context, our own intellectual formations, but also a a kind of imaginative identification, right? With with a certain possible politics, a world that could have been, because it is, I think the world that the Ambedkarites were building, right? Reconstructing the world, seeing it anew. Um, And what in many ways, you know, Marxism and Marxist thinking also was was attempting. the 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 work it seems to me is the question of what did Ambedkar mean right so thinking about Ambedkar both as a real presence and a very powerful one but to my mind also Ambedkar as an event in thought right so my interest uh, really was to push this question of the organic intellectual, thinking about intellectual histories from below and uh, to make an argument, right? Uh, Maybe not as explicitly as I might in in other writing and work, but to argue that a kind of movement history leaves unanswered the question of thought. Hmm. How did system thought develop? Who are the progenitors of anti-caste thinking? Right. what are the kind of prehistories that are in a sense preceding the world that More comes into? And I tried to do a bit of that, I think, in the introduction as well, to think about the long histories of Fule, uh, the, the, the really broad world of anti-caste radicalism that had preceded Ambedkar and then certainly More himself, but also the kind of life world, the complex material conditions, of Bombay and its environs, you spoke about uh, the Konkan sanjukta when you introduced the project. So, what were the kinds of connections? You know, the migrations, the real movement, that also enabled certain kinds of um, thought crossings, right? The creation of distinctive thought space that was emerging period so I think that's um, something that you know maybe unites the many different modes of reading the kind of interpretive um, acts that all of us engaged in and so on right um, yeah right
2: yeah,
3: yeah. Other, go ahead um, no and the other I think would would be the the ways in which kind of family history, and the writing of a kind of family history was also entailed in this project. I mentioned, you know, uh, there is More, there is Satyendra More, both make a presence in, in the book, right? Because it's Satyendra mm. More who reflects and provides a complete accounting of mm. his father's life. The father actually stops writing about his life, Arbi More, in mm. 1924 on the very cusp of the Mahad Satyagraha, the first yeah. major revolutionary civil rights struggle mm-hmm. that brings sort of to the fore as a a distinctive movement leader. And then there was, you know, Subodh, the grandson, who had put together the Marathi uh, autobiography and the biography. And I had a very close collaboration, as did Bandana, with Subodh and trying to get a sense of the ways in which Subodh himself was thinking about this project and this world and a particular kind of inheritance of of the family, right? Being a kind of red family that is also deeply Ambedkarat. And uh, that was a very light touch. Subodh was extremely open about the interpretations that we were offering. Just as, you know, Vandana indicated that her own kind of really deep investment in the text, this is a beautiful translation. Hmm. And it's a... that really hews to the original and the, uh, the the kind of the linguistic air, as as Benjamin puts it, of what is being communicated in in the Marathi text. And so her entry point was through the worlds that the words opened up.
1: Mm-hmm. For
3: me, it was I think the broader intellectual historical context in which. R.B. More suddenly emerged as a, as an unknown and underexplored figure that allowed us to really forefront this debate about caste and class in that period, if that right. makes sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's so beautifully portrayed, right? That the words, that the words opened up. And I think uh, the subtitle of the book is quite apt, right? The, the many words of R.B. uh, because I think it really captures the um, complexity of, uh, and, and, you know, the the richness and plenitude of R.B. Morey's life and its various facets. Um, so uh, and I think you have anticipated some of the questions I had in mind, but uh, just to maybe orient the readers a little bit, I want to mention that the text is organized in three broad sections, the critical introduction that's written by you, which we've been kind of hovering around and we'll discuss more and of course the incomplete autobiography of rb more which as you said stops uh, you know he he stops writing uh, uh, in, uh, or or uh, you know the, the writing stops just before the mahad satyagraha uh, of 1924 and then the biography by his son satendra more so um you know just to go back to this literary aspect of this book the fact that it straddles these genres the autobiography biography and then both the father and son come across as very self-reflexive authors with a deep sense of history and their own place within it and in the introduction and in the translator's note both of you reflect a little on the divergences and similarities in styles narrative te- techniques etc so i think uh, our, our our listeners would benefit from hearing a little bit of that reflection about the differences but also the dialogue that happens right between the father and son if i'm right to say that there's clearly a very uh, self reflexive and intense dialogue so a little bit about uh, those similarities differences uh, so unfortunately, uh, Vandana had to leave. So we'll continue the conversation with Anupama Rao. Um, and so Anupama, we were discussing about you know these the, the biography, the autobiography, um, the the texture of writing uh, of More and Satendra More, and also the dialogue that happens between the father and son. I think. That's really interesting, right? The process of writing sets up, well, a a one-way dialogue perhaps, because, you know, it's Satendra More reflecting on his father's life. Uh, Anyway, so I'm curious to hear your sense of the textures of difference between these two authors.
3: Sure, sure, and and I, you know, I think Vandana um, would uh, be able to kind of speak to the again the granularity of that of that engagement um, with the words and worlds, but I think what what emerges is, um, you know, keep in mind, you know, uh, Morey is born in 1903, he dies in 1972, he's encouraged to start writing his autobiography just before he passes away. Uh, Hence, you know, stopping at 1924 and and, and that kind of, you know, abrupt stop with the autobiography, just as you're beginning to have uh, the preparations that are being made on the ground for the 27 Maharsatya Now, the son picks up, in a sense, the father's life. And as I suggest, wants to give that life a certain place within a longer tradition of Communist life writing and biography right mm-hmm. And so I think the son's uh, interests are rather different from that of the father. right Now the father is in the press of the movement, and what we see, and this is I think why Vantana talks about the kind of beauty of Arbi More's text, he is at some level um, not using. The traditional categories of uh, politics. When he talks about his life, I I refer to him as um, uh, as an urban dandy. Uh, you know, someone who mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. You know, between the kind of, you know, subaltern life worlds of, you know, the Docklands, you know, uh, neighborhoods, kind of subaltern neighborhoods, working class neighborhoods, but is also coming into contact with, you know, the central command, as it were, of the Communist Party at the time, and engaging with them uh, in many ways, translating Marxist thought through these friend circles that are happening in working class Bombay in those areas and the chawl's of working class Bombay and so on. And 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 so Morey's language reflects, I think, a kind of immediacy. It reflects um, really a kind of um, complex inhabitation of his own social world and space. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. at least on the first reading, is providing for us a kind of political history of a kind of communist inspired history, if you will, of anti-colonialism and post-colonial independence, and also inserting his father's life in that narrative. Now, what creates the problem in a sense for Satyendra Morey Mm. is that the father is unrecognized. He is a Dalit Marxist. He's a Dalit communist Mm. whose suffering is not recognized by the party itself. There is a, a, a kind of unspoken understanding, uh, I think, by Satyendra More, that there is casteism that is mm-hmm. at the root of the invisibilization of the father's life. Right. And so there's a kind of tremendous interest, both a kind of political force and I think a, a personal investment. In placing the father within standard communist histories and biographies so that makes for again you talked about you know mixed genre that really makes for a kind of fractured narrative and one had to go back and reread Satyendra More to say this is actually quite complicated right this text too can be read against itself because on its first read it reads like any other kind of communist you know history of using borrowed terms and terminology, presenting for us a kind of, you know, standard left history and understanding mm. of uh, colonialism and the coming into being of the nation and so on. And then suddenly, you know, your punctu- the, the narrative is punctuated by very real accounts of caste humiliation, caste mm. exclusion, an understanding of the father's enormous sacrifice, which you know translates to the family's own experience of uh, destitution and poverty. Absolutely, right? yeah, so,
2: yeah. Uh,
3: you know, and that's a kind of first-order reflection, I suppose, um, on your question about the mixed genres or what is it that you know defines autobiography versus the biography.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think when you, this st- subtitle, which I found beautiful, the many words, um, and I was uh, talking about that earlier. So maybe we could just list some of the words uh, that oh, sure. Nore inhabited in uh, to your mind as a Dalit communist, or I'm calling him, you know, that's, I think that, yeah, he, he, you know, he's a Dalit communist organizer and leader. And then I want to move on to this question that you actually did uh, indicate uh, earlier, the the many spaces they inhabit, right? That's also part of the many lifers. So there's the metropolis of Bombay, the hinterland, which is the Konkan region. Uh, and, you know, both authors devote a lot of words to charting out these distinct specialities. And um, it, the, the, the hinterland, uh, which I feel it's a bit of a disservice to use the word, but the Concord countryside really comes alive um, and so as a cultural historian who's also interested in this intersection, uh, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm very curious to hear a, a, a intersection of caste and space and particular temporalities. I'm also uh, fascinated by, uh, by this, like you are. So, yeah, maybe we can chart out which are the many worlds and then um, this this charting out of distinct spaces that happens in both the writings. Sure. And we should probably, you know, um, combine the two because one
3: of the things that um, I do in the introduction, I think, is to think through the kind of embeddedness, the materiality of uh, the world that that More comes into, right? So uh, one is, you know, you talk about the hinterland and the countryside. Well, anti-caste thought and the politics of anti-casteism, if we go back to uh, Jyoti Rao Phule and the late 19th century and so on, this was actually a, a movement that uh, focused on rural areas where some of the most profound transformations happened in an everyday critique of caste and caste relations, right? Whether it was challenging the, the privileges and the hegemony of the Brahmin, uh, you know, poking fun at the Brahmin as a figure of cunning, Um, speaking to uh, the rural immiseration that was produced by the kind of combine of colonial capitalism, as well as uh, kind of, you know, upper caste monopoly over um, education, over the uh, colonial bureaucracy and so on. And so the, the rural hinterland, as you call it, the countryside was actually a vibrant space of politics and political organizing. And there were many connections in that region. I think partly also because of the ways in which colonial capitalism in the late 19th century really reconfigures the relationship between city and country in a place like Western India. So that would be one space, but it's also a thought space because mm-hmm. this is where you have um, anti-caste thinkers sort of going around and engaging in a number of um, public performative <laughs> enactments, if you will, of anti-caste thought, mm-hmm. right? The Tamasha form, um, uh, transforming, you know, mm-hmm. Lisa, to show that, uh, into a kind of pedagogical mode, right? Mm-hmm. Of speaking Power, but doing so through song through word and so on that is very much about engaging the everyday lives and practices of people so there's a kind of performative inactive element to this but mm-hmm. the the countryside actually in, in some ways uh um, is both prior to and adjacent and proximate to then that second space which is the world of urban radicalism that's taking mm. shape mm-hmm. and here i do want to you know emphasize in many ways the distinctive ways in which dalits escaping the rural countryside and caste relations in the country um, countryside come into the city and become in many ways sort of you know the first modern subjects who engage um, the urban sensorium in very particular ways mm-hmm. you know that happens through their engagement with labor their proximity to colonial public works. Mm-hmm. So whether it is, you know, in the municipality and thinking about, you know, uh, the work uh, that Valit that Labour performs as labour, right, in the city, their engagement with, you know, the railways and trams and so on and so forth. So there is a kind of interesting way in which the city then, speaking to your question about the different spaces of thought, uh, the city becomes a kind of locus, a rubric, a receptacle for both Dalit aspiration, but also Dalit engagements and encounters now with other new forms of thinking. Let's call Marxism a kind of new thought Mm -hmm. at that time, which it is. Um, And so now they're beginning to think through the ways in which a kind of modern organization of labor, the labor regime, and the discourses of exploitation and so forth that are emanating from those spaces can come together with a longer tradition of anti-caste thought. And I really try to think a little bit about the forms of um, what I call a kind of linguistic concreteness that's mm. born in that counter speaking to uh, a focus on language and really thinking through the work of words. So this is about mm. not just translation, but it's also about a kind of creative repurposing of terms, of images, figures of destitution and poverty and so forth, the ways in which those those um, tropes, if you will, as well, are made available for um, a kind of creative um, reinvigoration, as it were, right. of terms, degrees and new modes of thinking. So that would be the second space, I guess. The third is actually the space of the neighborhood. And the way in which we begin to see that colonial Bombay is both... Um, Fixing people in certain neighborhoods, it's certainly if we think through working class lives and so on, it's fixing people in neighborhoods, mm-hmm. neighborhoods adjacent to each other, the and Muslims, working classes versus the elites and so on. But because it is a city that is experiencing as well new technologies of connection, there is the capacity to for moving between and traversing those spaces and those boundaries right and that's what the city makes possible yeah. and I think that is what colonial urbanity with all of its uh you know um limits both in uh you know created by um the refurbishing if you will of cost relations within the city um the the work of capital itself and enclaving space in Bombay mm-hmm. and so on Despite those things, there is a way in which these thought worlds and imaginative spaces are also connected with each other.
2: Mm-hmm. So I
3: think that urban radicalism is an imaginative space, and it's a utopian space mm-hmm. that's kind of coming in contact with the material embedded reality of mm-hmm. the neighborhood, Charles of, chores, of you know, poor housing mm-hmm. and the long histories of of, of uh, exclusion, immiseration, destitution. Mm-hmm urban locations themselves produce in terms of, uh, uh, you know, what happens to valid life worlds and the lit lives. So this kind of complex paradoxical relationship between social emancipation and new forms of social enclaving, mm-hmm. right, I think produces a, a very interesting uh, kind of a moment speaking about, about thought. The other, I think, is also um, the kind of language, you know, what are people reading? And what are they encountering, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of this has to do with uh, the fact that, you know, um, Marxism as such, a Marxist thought as such, mm-hmm. is itself being transmitted in very interesting ways. It's not, you know, being transmitted, you know, certainly, yes, there is um, there is an effort to have, you know, reading groups and, and uh, consciousness-raising, you know, groups and so forth where classical Marxist, you know, categories, which are, to my mind, very... Um, that are inflexible, right? I mean, these are, these are terms that actually don't provide uh, the room and flexibility for maneuver are themselves being communicated and certainly to the Brahminical left as it were. But then there is a whole other world, a kind of fugitive world, if you will, of connections through language, through literary worlds, as well as through what we might think of as kind of you know theoretical political mm. work. And that adjacency, I want to say, between the literary and, in some sense, the 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 um, political, right, the worlds of kind of, you know, literary thinking mm-hmm. and political. Thought. And that engagement, I think, is extremely interesting. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, these particular specialities, I mean, even the kind of uh, subspecialities like, you know, within the countryside, there's there's like particular spaces like Dasgaon or, you know, um, the port, which enables uh, a certain kind of mobility, the fact that uh, the British army recruits from that region for particular reasons. So there's like those distinct subspecialities within the countryside, as it were. And then even within uh, Bombay, as you mentioned, there's the neighborhoods, there's the mills, there's So, and I think all of them together, we see uh, in their writings, how they come together in a manner of speaking, to intersect with the material histories intersect with these personal histories, um, to enable the development of individual and, and as well as collective Dalit political consciousness, right? Because one of the questions I think that this book answers is, why did this kind of um, Dalit consciousness developed very early on here and not elsewhere, right? That's yes. the answer, really. To uh, that's the answer to the question, you know, to to uh, and the answer is it's it's this distinct spatial and material history intersecting, uh, also uh, the intersection of early education amongst the mahars. That's possible. So uh, I you know I don't want to uh, give too many spoilers because it's riveting book. Um, So I I think now I want to talk. go back perhaps again to this relationship between the father and the son and uh, we'll come back to caste networks in a bit. Uh, uh, I think Satyaj Mora uses the phrase, at least in Vandana's translation, the uh, the phrase is thoughtful rebellion to describe how, uh, you know, to describe R.B. Mora's decision to join the Communist Party. Uh, And, you know, of course, when one reads the book, there is some sense of Rationalization, but it's a rationalization that Satendra More attributes to RB More, right? And so, you know, you've been uh, thinking about this and talking to us about this already, but uh, it will be interesting to hear that given the differences between the Ambedkarites and communists that exist to this day, um, what was this Marxist communist uh, Dalit utopia that More was imagining, uh, at, and what was his vision for? Dalit Marx's political action because I think that really um, it, it, it's really utopic. That's the word that you've used, and I, I quite agree. So um, interested sure. to hear about that. Absolutely. I mean, this is kind of getting to the crust, uh, the
3: the crux of uh, um, both the kind of problem in a sense and um and the ways in which we kind of resolve this right and explain it and uh, i think it's you know if if we go by moray's own account and the way it's presented to us. Um, certainly, the, the argument is that you know, Morey himself comes to an understanding of a broader politics of the poor, kind of poverty poor, if you will, as a kind of you know, multitude, as a, uh, as a kind of um, emergent collectivity, and so on, that he begins to kind yes. of engage with then identify with and empathize with. But that is actually coming from his involvement with the Ambedkar movement, but also his own experiences, right? You know, as a student, he's you know wandering around Daskau. He is, uh, as a very young person, he establishes a hotel where you know uh, all the castes can you know can find water, can have access to water and food near the bus stop because this is indeed, as you mentioned, a place where um, military pensioners. And Dalits who've been a part of the British army, there's a, there's a conclave of them, right? And they play a very big role in uh, producing uh, new uh, foci for educating the youth, so kind of mass intellectuality. But they also bring with them um, a certain kind of elite status, having been members of the army. So, so Moray sort of you know narrates his own life right, creating this, this space of, of kind of cross-cast inclusion. Uh, he talks about his own experiences with education and you know, the education itself is interrupted by politics. So this is very interesting to think about the intellectual within and without the institution of the school. So where is mass intellectuality to be found? You know, where is politics and political awakening happening? And Mori talks about this through his own experiences of schooling um, and then explains his decision in 1930 to become a card carrying member of the Communist Party as an engagement actually with Ambedkar. He says he meets Ambedkar and conveys to him the idea that, you know, he could be in a sense more efficacious as someone who is translating many of the uh, the, the vision, if you will, of the Ambedkar movement and carrying it to a much broader or enacting those politics on a larger scale. And uh, it remains, you know, uh, underexplained certainly and um, under theorize certainly to ask, what is it that produces that moment of decision, right? And, and we confronted that too, and I confronted that as well. Uh, and partly because, you know, to, to, to offer an explanation also means that one is involving oneself in a very complex, as you yourself pointed out, a very complex argument about the relationship between caste and class, but also between Ambedkaras and communists. So Ambedkar himself is, you know, uh, leads the anti Antikota movement, you know, it's a group of, you know, it's a a rural action as it were against landlordism. And he comes together with the uh, Peasant and Workers' Party and really leads that movement around labor because it's also an argument about agrarian labor and caste. But there are other moments where, of course, we know that the history of the communist movement in India is one of refusing to recognize the specificity of caste or wanting to think that caste must be converted into class. So not thinking through the social conditions of caste immiseration or the long, you know, histories of caste and, you know, historic violence of caste um, and wanting to sort of, you know, effect an easy translation, but also a kind of historical transition, if you will, into uh, class relations on the ground. So that moment really is, is a very interesting, and I want to suggest an underexplored moment, and we want to leave it that way. Right? because there isn't any adequate way of explaining, you know, how that comes about, except to say that there's something about that world that More inhabits that allows him to translate between these two forms and practices, political practices. But I think I would want to make a broader theoretical argument, which I also make in the introduction, which is that heterodox marxisms and certainly the heterodox marxism that we see taking shape in urban bombay at the time actually has its roots the prehistory of that lies in anti-caste thought and not the other way around right so the challenge you know if you wanted me to kind of you know jump in and say listen i know you know pick a side well the side that i'm on is to say that anti-caste thought produces the modes of imagining, thinking, caste destitution, manual, the relationship between intellectual and manual labor and so forth in ways that both precede and form the kind of repertoire for heterodox Marxisms. And this would be, you know, I think akin to the way that um, people have looked at, um, let's say, um, African-American political thought, thinking about someone like, you know, Du Bois, and Du Bois's own movement into Marxism, which is also happening in sort of the interwar period uh, and leading up into World War II, um, but that there's something about the relationship between the embeddedness, the social embeddedness of embodied exclusion, exploitation, humiliation, right? And the ways in which new, uh, you know, new political forms and formations and languages are able to both kind of predate on this and elaborate that uh, framework uh, as it were. Right. Yeah. I can't hear you, uh, Sanjukta, at all.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm here. I I just muted myself so uh, you know so that there's no background noise on my side. Uh, but yeah, this is fascinating. And again, it you know, it answers to some degree this uh, conceptual question, right, this epistemological question about why Bombay was the center of this major labor movement. And I think you give a very interesting proposition that um, this uh, massive anti-caste network that was developing in great part actually predated and uh, was the progenitor, as it were, of the Labor movement to some degree, and not the other way around, because again, uh, there are labor movements in other cities. But then, why did Bombay become such a? I mean, it's not just the existence of infrastructure like mills, etc., where there are workers, because that's also happening in other urban spaces like Calcutta and uh, Chennai. So uh, that's that's really fascinating. And I think I want to ask something about this, um, you know, the solidarity network between various caste groups that we. See in the book, right? So, one of course is between various so called untouchable castes like the Mahars and the Sambars, uh, and then between touchable uh, untouchable castes and touchable backward castes who are also mentioned, uh, which in current parlance would be like, uh, you know, the emergence of a Dalit Bahujan solidarity network. Uh, what is interesting uh, to me is that upper caste groups seem absent to the extent that they appear as. Uh, You know, there are individuals from upper caste who are part of the solidarity groups. Their names are mentioned often. Uh, But what about, uh, do we know anything about the interaction between upper caste groups who were also forming caste associations? And I know this from uh, the context of northern India, like UP. And so was there any kind of interaction between the upper caste networks and Uh, anti-caste groups, because of course the upper caste groups were entering this debate from a very different perspective. So uh, if you, you know, uh, from your scholarship or something from this book that you might know about this.
3: Sure, sure. Um, I should begin also by saying that, you know, um, I don't want to suggest that uh, the kind of, this moment of opening is not also a deeply complex and uneven moment. Right. Because one of the things that, you know, one also knows, speaking of uh, broader historical scholarship and the context and so on, is the very real divide in rural areas between, for instance, you know, Marathas, dominant caste Marathas, who are themselves landlords, who have access to land and so forth. And they are the landlords. If we think about, you know, Dalits and Dalit labor as kind of agrarian waged labor um, in in the rural um, countryside. And so those fissures, I think, do continue. Right. So we shouldn't lose sight, I think, of the very complex ways in which, you know, classes come together at certain particular moments of solidarity, of affinity and so on. But there's also really deep deep cleavages. Right. Or you can think about, you know, the 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 presence, the very significant Presence of what I will call, you know, Muslim communists, right, who are also very much a part of this history. So, um, so, so, you know, so, so, we should be a little careful in thinking about this merely as a moment, if I can put it that way, of kind of political possibility and opening. It's certainly that, but I think, you know, underlying that are also very deep fissures. And um, and then, you know, to your point about sort of, you know, the upper castes and, and a kind of Brahminical leadership. Yes, we certainly hear about S.V. Deshpande. There is Dange himself, who um, is, is very critical in uh, coming out of, we might say, you know, early socialism into embracing communism party politics and so on, those histories themselves are quite complicated, right? So we do hear about those figures. Now, what again might be distinctive in the Maharashtra context, it seems to me, this is not a full answer to your question, is the um, power of upper caste or Brahminical social reform, right? So the, the reformist world, you know, of an Agarkar, Right, uh, and and various other upper caste you know, uh, Brahmin social reformers, right, and their relationship in thinking and rethinking the caste question at least at the level of their own everyday practice and lives really engaging in some practice of transformation, a kind of critical thinking about, you know, their upper caste position, location. Or you could think about someone like Osambi, who's also writing at this time, who's beginning to think about the role of caste in history and caste in a certain kind of writing or rewriting of universal history. So I think you do see in Maharashtra, back to your question, you know, why does this happen here? Um, there one should think about Brahminical social reform as also in its own way, um, quote unquote, radical, <laughs> you know, and as providing a kind of opening for other caste groups and communities to come together. Again, here, I think this is uneven. It is certainly not complete. It's fraught with all kinds of everyday practices of exclusion. I mean, the the two, you know, the two matka system that Arbi uh, Mori talks about in the Communist Party office, right? That you drink from two different water, you know, from water matkas. The fact that, you know, you continue to experience new technologies of segregation, starting with schooling. So, you know, Brahmanism itself, you might say, is morphing. And reorganizing, in a sense, uh, the relationship of different castes to each other at this time too. If we think that that is the broader work of colonial capital and colonial capitalism in reorganizing what caste is and is becoming as well. Uh, I don't know if that partly answers your question, but I think it's a complex question about you know um, affinity, but also, I think, deep agonism and difference. Yeah, absolutely. And here, yeah. yeah. And here I think the the peasant workers party and you know what's happening in rural areas mm-hmm. and the communist focus on industrial labor, mm-hmm. that I think should be distinguished because there is a kind of a agra- great the framing of the agrarian question and the kind of class question as a question of you know industrial labor and urbanity again going back to um, standard or typical or hegemonic communist party thinking that is also reframing the ways in which Bahujan castes and communities obcs bcs etc and marathas themselves who are very much participating in rural activism and organization are relating in some sense to uh, a kind of uh, unspoken Brahmanism <laughs> of the Communist Party. You can think about Gandhada you can think about a Pandey, you can think about Dange, you can mm-hmm. think about later on and the split within the communist party itself but yeah how is it that all of these guys that they're all men <laughs> end up uh occupying the space of uh, of, of uh, radical politics if that is indeed the ways in which we want to think about uh marxist thought and communism itself right. and uh, you know, so it's an interesting and difficult question to parse.
2: Right. And yeah, it's a time of great churning. And I think, again, to go back to the book, uh, you know, it's uh, it's an insight, a very intimate insight into almost the, um, you know, the background uh, to, uh, to uh, and, and in that sense, this is such an important work of public history, right? Uh, because it's not just, um, it, it, you know, in some ways you can read this work as almost a archival material, right? I mean, if, but then it's also uh, important to bring that archive to the people so that they can read for themselves how uh, we as historians and scholars frame um, frame the narrative through material like this, right? Um, so there's, you know, it's so rich and there's so much scope for discussion, uh, but we're coming towards the end of the conversation. So I want to actually, go back to more's personality i feel we really spoke about his activism even his uh, relationship with his son uh but uh I, and you you call him of course uh, an urban dandy but also urban flaneur right he's an urban flaneur that's what a dandy figure is really but the interesting thing is that he's a subaltern dandy right and usually the dandy figure as we know is associated with a certain class position uh anyway so this you know he when he's wandering about the streets of bombay in the ports that's that's that's, a ve- that's that's where i got the sense of what you know this world of plenitude it's not all about struggle activism but there's also nutter, there's also wandering there's friendship um And to the extent that even draws the accusation that he's a Mawali, right? Like he uses the word that people said that I've become a Mawali. Uh, And of course our association today with the Mawali is through the uh, Bombay film industry perhaps and you know what we know uh, of contemporary Bombay. So uh, there were so many connections with when he uses the word Mawali that uh, Vandana chooses to leave as it is in the, uh, in the, in the book. So um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm just interested to hear about this plenitude and this joy that comes through in his writing um, and says something about his personality, because we're not just reconstructing him as a, um, you know, as a uh, organic intellectual, which he definitely is, but also as this full-fledged human being who was, um, you know, uh, in very complex circumstances, uh, finding joy and happiness. If if I'm not uh, over reading, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I think
3: I think that's right. I mean, you know, and I think it's precisely that that relationship between um, urban destitution and a kind of remaking of selfhood, really through the ethical project right of of kind of rehumanizing oneself and I think what you see in more is, Precisely that the, the fullness of that life, the complications of that life that are transcending everything um, or that are trans- translating, I should say, across a number of different registers, right? One is the very real um, impact of being um, orphaned, you know, father dying, mother actually, you know, being really the, you know, having a single mother who is, is laboring to, to take care of her children. Uh, the complex kind of family circumstances, including of exploitation within the joint family that he's experiencing and having to live with and accommodate in some ways, right? And the way that he does that I think is to be both within and without that world. And education and that broader world of exposure to mass intellectuality, so-called democratic education, if you will, opens up a space for him that makes it bearable to live with the conditions of real life. And then I think the political project, the collective project of creating um, a, a kind of new personhood, a new humanity then becomes the occasion for, as you say, I love that term, you know, joyful association. So on the ground, you kind of, you know, experience people certainly, yes, through a kind of sociology of their class and caste positions and so on. But there's a way in which he's able to also be in the moment and to say, okay, even, you know, the ritual world, which is deeply stratified, where you know we are completely excluded there are those moments where we actually take the lead we walk in the chapena we are the ones who walk ahead so he's got a kind of attentivity to um, tradition (laughs) right and the vagaries of tradition the contradictory consciousness as it were that the organic intellectual really kind of inhabits embraces and works with that I think is what makes him really quite extraordinary and yes I think it is the ethical force of the politics that kind of pro- propels him outside of all of the kind of, you know, apparent closures, the distinctions, the differences, the deep inequity that he's confronting, including in the party that he adopts as his home. He makes a home in that party. Much of the time from the 1930s onwards, he's offsite, as it were, because he's underground, right? As a member of the Communist Party, he's underground. It's his wife, it's the child, it's a Tindra Mori, who are sort of saying, this is what destitution feels like when the father is missing from the scene. And those, you know, sacrifices and so forth are explained in some sense through the power of that political utopianism, right? Yeah, you know, and one doesn't want to, you know, one doesn't want to kind of, you know, uh, either fetishize that or, or, uh, you know, uh, see that merely as uh, a, a kind of, you know, utopianism that work without thinking about the real closures, the, the kind of, you know, the sociological rifts, if you will, that underlie it. But I think it is that, and that's what the language opens up, which is why, you know, Vandana again spoke about the fact that it's a kind of beautiful language. What makes it beautiful? It is, it is simple. It is everyday. It's filled with the terms of actual living human beings on the ground. Right, right. And brings that world to life Mm -hmm. to say, listen, every moment is a decision. You know, do I go sleep on a park bench today because I have nowhere to go? Do I jump into a, you know, a restaurant with my friends and eat and try to run away? And, you know, you remember what happens. They say, well, if you don't have money, we're going to take your clothes. He's literally stripped. Right, right. Right. There's another moment of decision. Do I study or do I become a mumblee? Do I become something of a, of a kind of a, a, a goon figure, if you will, right? Who's hanging out with guys who are smoking bhang and engaging in, in a whole series of kind of, you know, underworld <laughs> tactics of survival. Yeah. And he knows both of those worlds. He knows the world of, you know, the Brahmin, you know, Brahminical, you know, intellectual life worlds. And he knows that underworld, right? And he's moving between those two, just as much as he's moving between, you know, um, Ambedkarite aspiration and politics. Absolutely. And uh, the early history of the Communist Party is a place that, you know, held some uh, some, uh, openings in place for what, uh, what uh, for the new kind of politics that he's envisioning. So he's also moving in his journalism between those spaces, right?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: Janata, Avhan, Yugantar, mashad you know, these are all also speaking of words, they're, they're potent powerful words like, mm-hmm. you know, and Zindabad, I mean, which is an extraordinary global rallying cry mm-hmm. from time, right, and a word that now is invested with new meaning under new political and changed circumstance, Mm -hmm. but that word lives on, you know, available for rethinking, remaking, uh, new imagination, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'd like to, you know, think of of More as that kind of a figure, to your point as well, of, you know, a whole set of what we might call promiscuous practices of reading, Mm -hmm. that perhaps that text opens up, you know, one wants to be, faithful to that world and, uh, and the work and the words to the extent that, you know, one recognizes the enormous intellectual labor mm-hmm. that has gone into serving the history and the account of this individual that we come to know, um, you know, in, in very infrequent and underexplored ways, even in the Marathi literary world, as Mandana was saying. But on the other hand, I think we also want to give ourselves some um some permission mm-hmm. right to ask what was that world and what could it have been right
2: and the, it's very cinematic right i mean i'm thinking of the word cinema uh, because it's so it, it there's it's a, it's a world of contrast that he inhabits the fact that he can jump between and and he, call, he he thinks of himself as a bridge at least according to satendra mohit between the uh, ambedkarite movement and the communist movement but he's a bridge in so many other ways right the, the high intellectual world of journalism thinking organizing and, uh, and and also the ground level organizing that he does um so yeah really I, I the word i have is a world of plenitude there's so much and the cinematic moments come from these Dramatic decisions that he has to take um, that you were that you were discussing, and you know that that moment when he when he's in a restaurant and they try to escape without paying because they don't have much money, and that's when they're like, no, you need to leave behind your clothes uh, because you know he doesn't have money. So uh, I think it would be rendered into. I, I can see uh, to my imagination that would make a beautiful film um but yeah is there a paragraph if you have the book with you that you know that you would like to read out uh um that stayed with you uh... give me a minute
1: let me think yeah, about this. Sure. Mm-hmm. this meeting is being recorded
3: So, so, Sanjikta, let me let me read, in a sense, to your point about um, a, a world of a kind of plenitude, right? And uh, this is from page 76 uh, mm-hmm. from More biography. And uh, he talks about the fact that he's staying with relatives uh, in, um, in the Charles and says, Akka and my relatives were happy to see that I'd got a job. The place where I was working was a European seaman's office under the control of the Navy. The office was located where the Maharashtra Strait legislature legislature building stands today. From the point of view of us people, not only was the salary high, but I earned an income daily. There were lodgings for the seamen and a bar selling beer and other types of alcoholic drinks in that place. My task was to give them receipts for bed tickets and bar tickets and hand over the money collected to the office. Bed tickets were for eight annas. Supposing the sailor paid one rupee for the ticket. I had been briefed by the person in whose place I was working that if the man did not accept the eight annas I returned to him as change. I was to put the extra eight annas in my pocket instead of in the collection box. In this way, I sometimes piled up as much as 10 rupees in a single day or at least five rupees per day. So, you know, actually plenitude, right? Money, unexpected money. Friends of mine knew I had a daily income. This extra money is not earned through toil. It is unholy money. It's a sin to keep it with you. This is so resonant of, you know, something like the de- devil and commodity fetishism, right? This is money that's not yours and must be given away. So you must spend it, Moray says. All of these friends smoked BDs, ate fun with tobacco, drank spirits and toddy, and smoked hash and grass. They were the same ones who played one stringed instruments, tambourines and drums, and sang bhajans in the night. When we had finished eating something in the restaurant, we would go and sit in a toddy bar in the Dobitallau or Crawford Market area. We would beat on the benches and sing kavalis. And at dinner time, we'd go home swinging our arms. For about a week, nobody at home knew that I had this daily income. And again, this speaks to the question also of somebody who's. Circumstances of destitution, of a kind of daily exploitation that he's both witnessed and and participated, you know, inhabited and experienced. How does this person also affect this extraordinary generosity? And I think this question of plenitude, right? On the one hand, somebody whose uh, life, world, and life experiences. Uh, don't permit this kind of, you know, uh, um, conspicuous uh, expenditure. But we constantly see this act of generosity. I don't mind destituting myself as a chosen act. And he does that, right? leaves his family behind and says, you guys figure out what's going on, I'm going underground, right? The family is out on the street. They're rendered homeless. So there's this constant way in which for for Mori as well, apparently what he has and what he doesn't have doesn't matter so much as the contexts within which they become occasions for a certain kind of thought, right? The practice of of a certain sort of generosity, of pleasure, of being with people who are part of his world and giving them access to precisely excess when their entire life is about exploitation, and not having enough. So this is, you know, to my mind, and there are many places like this, mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. that act of a kind of um, ethical generosity, the kind of opening oneself to the world, come what may, daring bars, we call it, right? It's <laughs> uh, that kind of an act of political daring and, a kind of ethical vulnerability that I think is very interesting in, in the Moray text, uh, in Arby Moray's text at various points. In that,
2: Yeah. Way. Yeah. And, and, and I think uh, you, and maybe Vandera mentioned that his son writes in a more almost programmatic manner, right? And it's more like a uh, commentary, whereas uh, in Arby Moray's voice, there's these kind of moments are, there's so many of these, and that makes it such a rich and, as Bandana said, well, beautiful
3: it, it doesn't know who he's going to become, right? Yeah, I mean, I think
2: right, of, of course.
3: Question, speaking of temporality, yeah, is right. the son knows the father right. and has a sense of where the father belongs in, write, in, in writing a life. Right. Now, more being thrown into that life, and therefore, the relationship between sort of, you know, labor and pleasure, the relationship between sort of space and thought, you know, there's a there's a way in which there's a kind of intermingling of uh, of divisions of the mind, if you will, you know, divisions of kind of social thought and theory and concept formation that, you know, we inherit. He doesn't know.
2: How does how would he know what Good. is going? made of his life. Yeah. Right. He doesn't know the reception history of, of his life, of, of his writing. But that was such a beautiful, beautiful paragraph that you read out, right? It's I think it 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 brings in all these threads of his life that we've been uh trying to kind of uh parse out and understand and see them in all their colors. Um yeah. Um so um yeah, is there anything that actually we didn't get time to talk about, and you would like to bring up? Uh, please do. Um, I think I just want to
3: mention and press on that kind of um, that that troubled spot, right? Um, there were that we've had a lot of questions of you know. A kind of, what side are you on, or the choice to be made? What does it mean to call him a Dalit communist? Why not just a communist or an Ambedkarite? Uh-huh. Um, you know, why mark that the 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 the, the presence, right? Yeah. The, uh, the identity presence, as it were, mm-hmm. and the political affiliation presence and to put them together and and it's that anachronism actually that i think one wants to stay with rather than resolve in any way i've suggested to you the way that i personally might resolve that question mm-hmm. but but you know i think one would want to leave that a little bit open ended and that's a troubled spot because again as you've said and i've indicated i think the history of what follows in terms of the, the, the real divide between Ambedkarites and communists on the ground, even if you know in Ambedkar's own thinking, the openings provided by um, you know, labor universalism and universality actually allows him to kind of rethink the caste question. And I've made that argument in, in the book and elsewhere too. Um, even if that's, that's the kind of uh, moment that we want to think about, this is a very troubled point. And it is one that keeps recurring. And and I think I just want to mark that moment. Mm -hmm. And the second I think is also something that goes back to something we started with, which is what are the kinds of reading practices, the moments of uh, interpretation and so forth that are adequate to a complex text like this and a work that is both complex in itself, but whose translation itself is complex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, bringing our own um, political pasts, our political histories, our own particular ways of identifying with this figure called Arbi More, you know, the biography, the life, and so on, and how much of this is a kind of imagined, you know, um, problematic, and how much of this is really thinking through a forgotten or an important moment in the relationship between anti-colonial thought and the kind of left thought, and, you know, heterodox Marxisms and so on, right, so Mm -hmm. sort of, before and after marks if you will. Yeah, yeah
2: yeah so to complicate oh, that hyphen right uh, it's right. not a hyphen it's it's a more complicated symbol um and yeah. and i think that explains why you know why uh, use the phrase dalit communist it's not a marking of identity only but it's also to mark the two movements uh, that were sitting uneasily the two life worlds right and two histories two larger histories
3: absolutely hmm. and and that i think is is the occasion for um I would hope, and, you know, one is beginning to see, as somebody said, you know, now that uh, the, the, the left is, is truly history, <laughs> we really have a return to those forgotten left histories and a real effort to think about them. And one is playing that edge, right, of a certain kind of political thought and political history and what um, my colleague Cynthia Hartman calls critical fabulation. Hmm. That, you know, one is constantly thinking the otherwise, the what could have been, the what if, and, and this text really opens out onto onto that very complex, you know, edge that um, I think one is walking now. Uh, you know in other work uh it's it's harder to give yourself permission to play with this you know mm-hmm. other kinds of ethical and intellectual demands and commitments and responsibilities right to what you're doing but in this text you know one was able to sort of really play with that yeah
2: because his
3: own narrative makes it possible absolutely, you know and it's a literary question of reading right. it is a question words and their work and how they remake and engage worlds it's about thought what is Mm -hmm. the systematistic thought so that's a particular way in which we think about the work of words Mm -hmm. so what is the relationship between analysis and description Mm -hmm. (laughs) what is the relationship between the literary and the political Mm -hmm. what is the relationship between caste and class you know uh what is the relationship between um the kind of intimacy that, you know, biography provides apparent intimacy, right? Mm-hmm. Always with that question in mind and the kind of distanced, you know, modes uh, of, of history writing that one is also engaging and how much can one play that edge responsibly, right? Opening up, opening it up as a as an unresolved question, mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm then something that, you know, should be closed or should be answered definitively once and for all.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So in conclusion, uh, please tell us about any other future project. We we know that you're working on this Dalit Bombay books or if there's anything else you want to share with us. Sure. Uh, I think Dalit Bombay is is um, slightly backgrounded
3: or has reappeared in some sense um, with the, the work that I've been doing and have been sort of singularly committed to since um, 2018, certainly with the Umbraker Initiative mm-hmm. and. To really again think about Ambedkar as an event and thought, but also as somebody who has his early intellectual history here at Columbia, where I teach. And so that um, sort of initiative has really been trying to think about the many worlds of Ambedkar, if you will, just to borrow that term, and how to locate him both in his time and in ours. And so that's the kind of project where I'm beginning to really think about sort of the global histories of democratic thought, the relationship between India and the US, you know, certainly triangulated and working through empire and the British Empire, but really for me, the the US and the United States is a very important kind of, you know, third term in the way that we're thinking about our uh, kind of, you know, our, our imperial life worlds. Uh, within which Ambedkar is kind of moving and so I think uh, many of the questions that are raised maybe in this book or that are of uh, enduring concern for me um, are happening through a project of close reading and also of kind of near and far reading of this figure and uh, really again playing with the question of you know in his time and in ours mm-hmm. and thinking of this juncture as a productive one um for for engaging sort of that figure and so you know some of the questions of sort of Dalit Bombay have to do with sort of Dalit Bombay in Harlem as much as in Bombay right so it's it's mm. kind of you know expanded the scale and the scope of um the concerns I think
2: okay that's that's wonderful and yeah I think we'll that that merits another different conversation, right? So Anupama, thank you so much for joining uh, me here today. And thanks to Vandana in absentia. Uh, I hope many readers read this important, rich and thought-provoking work. Um, so thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network.
3: Thanks so much, Sanjuta. And thanks, Vandana. <laughs>